Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's time to talk politics. It's Hardline on WBEN. Now, WBEN's David Bellavia. Welcome back to Hardline. We've got Dr. Jacob Nyheisel here with the University of Buffalo School of Political Science. One of the things I want to get into a little bit about this Chick-fil-A situation, we're going to have Mark Epstein coming up here at 1130. He's got a new piece in New English Review. Uh, .org about the managerial state, which is something that interests you from the 19th century, how we got into the sort of the, well, you, you don't like the term deep state, but there was a difference between right. people who served back then and in, in how they got into power as what we have today. So we'll get into that at 1130. Uh, but in this half hour, I want to talk a little bit about this Chick-fil-A uh, situation at the Buffalo airport. And just the how controversial the Hobby Lobby case actually was. Right. In 2012, Mitt Romney caught a lot of uh, heat because he said famously... Corporations are people, my friend. Corporations are people, and that would mean that they have the same rights uh, that are given to individuals under the First Amendment. So a corporation can exercise speech, right? and that has consequences beyond money. It means that they can get involved in the causes. Right. Uh, and we've seen that Coca-Cola can decide to give money to humanitarian organizations and charities. But sometimes those charities are controversial charities. That's not, Absolutely. you know, it's not drilling wells in Africa. It could be something religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so insofar as Citizens United and Hobby Lobby are still good law, uh, this is a really interesting case, along with sort of a what I imagine to be a twin case down in Texas that we talked about briefly. And, you know, I, I can geek out about constitutional issues all the time. So I apologize to anyone who wants to tune out right now and not hear the, the lecture. And I also have to issue some caveats here. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, nothing I say should be construed as advice in that arena. Uh, and so if you're a lawyer and you want to call in and tell me to stay in my lane and play my own sandbox, you're, you're perfectly uh, capable of doing so. Um, also, yeah, this is just speculative. We don't really know what happened with the, the local Chick-fil-A case here. Uh, and the details are really going to matter. The fact pattern is really going to matter in terms of what's relevant here and what's not. But I think it's a fun case to speculate about um, or, or think about in terms of some of the issues at stake here. Well, let, let me play some audio. This is Sean Ryan's statement. And here's where I think he's really opened the door to uh, without any defense whatsoever under what current federal – this is Supreme Court of the United States – uh, here's uh, Sean Ryan. After consideration, they realized that a company with the uh, anti-LGBT stance, uh, like Chick-fil-A, really isn't a good fit for a public airport. With a stance of anti-LGBTQ, uh, this is not a good fit for the airport. Well, that implies that we know the politics of every other CEO right. or board of directors uh, that's at the airport. I mean, listen, first of all, there's two pieces to this. It implies that there aren't, a, you know, there aren't other Americans that have businesses in Erie County that don't feel that way. 
And one of the things that we're, we pride ourselves in is how, you know, this multiculturalism, how Buffalo has grown. It's no longer, uh, you know, Hispanics, blacks, and whites. You have people from the Middle East here. You have uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish community here. Uh, so if I went to a halal restaurant, I think you would find that the majority of people that see marriage very similarly to evangelicals, Catholics, would I be able to go to a business and say, you give money to the Catholic charities? Wait a second. The Catholic Church is an anti-LGBTQ organization. Therefore, you don't belong anywhere at an airport or a mall because you donate to Catholic charities. It's a slippery slope, and I, I don't think you can defend it. As a private individual, you can boycott any restaurant, any establishment you want to. That, that is your right. Um, you can make a stink about it. You can do all the things that are available to you, all the channels you have. Uh, where I think that this becomes more interesting is that there is a, a public entity involved in making this determination. And again, I don't know what happened. All I know was that it was the restaurant was coming in at one point in time. It was no longer coming in at a different point in time, and there were statements in the middle. And I'm going to give you know, a fair amount of leeway to, to the assemblyman here. He he is a lawyer. He works on or worked on uh, employment law, and so he may know the more the relevant case law much better than I do. But I, I think that from his statements there, for what we can determine, uh, there certainly is a, a something of a free speech argument here to to be made. So, and by the way, you could join this uh, this half hour, 803-0930 for the Republican line, 644-9875 for the Democratic line. We're talking about the Chick-fil-A situation with Dr. Jo- uh, Jacob Nyheisel from the University of Buffalo School of Political Science. H- how do we get, you know, one of the things that I look at is everyone is testing their DNA. And what we're finding out is that there really is no such, th- everyone's got some form of what you used to think, I'm 100% German, I'm 100% Italian, you know, this is all. And then you find out, well, I might have some other mix in, in my system. Uh, you know, people travel and, and uh, different things, wars have happened. And folks find out now for the first time that they're not what they think they are. They can identify everyone has a certain strain of DNA from all over the place. To me, in a in a perfect utopian world, it would show that it's kind of stupid to be racist because, you know, you probably have what if what you allege to hate might actually be in your own family tree. So we're all the same and we're all on this planet together. Let, why why even waste time with divisiveness? But the other problem here is that what happens when people start to say, I would like, you know, the status that was saved for minorities but I've got 10%, you know, African-American blood in me, or I've got 10% African blood mm-hmm. in me. Uh, do I qualify for the same sort of, of quota or government grant that a person who has traditionally been marginalized in the United States? I mean, I think that's a really difficult series of conversations that are coming. I think the, the, the traditional or the stock answer would be, well, did you, did you live the discrimination, right? If you were able to go about your life not knowing or not understanding that you had some of these traits that are shared or DNA that's shared, if you're able to sort of pass, if you will, and you lived your life as someone who was not discriminated against, you had you know no problems, I think that the, the line would be drawn where, no, you're not entitled to any kind of particular considerations because, look, you, you never had to live the experience of that community. And I, I think that that's a difficult line to draw. 
But I think that might be where we start to have a conversation narrowing in on, okay, here's, here's where the distinctions are made. But we've never traditionally given civil rights to religion. Okay, and right. so when I test your DNA, I can't determine how many gay people are in your family. I can't determine how many Muslim people are in your family. I can extrapolate that if you're from a region, there's more than, you know, whatever. But my, my point is, is that people that were traditionally, uh, you know, shown discriminatory behavior because of their ethnicity, that is why the civil rights movement became what the civil rights movement became, because these people were automatically looked at differently because of how they appeared and what they were. And now we've had almost this secondary third form of civil rights, which is, but this is who I love and I'm discriminated against because I'm left handed or I'm, you know, developmentally disabled. Or that I'm, you know, and so now there's so many different branches of this civil rights tree that I, I think it's really confusing, to, especially when you look at the 2020 campaign. I mean, we believe every victim. Joe Biden, I don't know how Joe Biden recovers from the, the last 72 hours because we have a woman now in Nevada that is saying that he was smelling her hair, making her uncomfortable. That's really been a joke about Joe Biden for a very long time is that he's creepy and he crazy Uncle Joe, crazy Uncle Joe will rub your your shoulders and make out with your wife and all this weird stuff. But it's almost like you, you built this playpen, you built this sandbox and you you brought everyone to the table. Eventually, they, they start to fight each other and, and you've lost total control over that. Right. It's certainly a difficult series of conversations to have going forward, but. Group conflict. We have 13 minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> we're still we're a groupy species, right? We, we like groups. We like, we like boundary markers. We like drawing distinctions. And we like us versus them battles. And you know, anytime you get a diverse group and there's a divide the dollar politics at issue or there's a zero-sum game where somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, group coalitions start to fracture and start to fray. And You I, know, I, I thought about you because you have a beard. <laughs> no, no, seriously, you have a beard and some people identify you. There's a prejudice automatically when they see a beard and they think that you're either you see the world one way or they might see a religious reason for that. They might see uh, another encounter that <laughs> I am sure people do. And they, and they will prejudge you by the fact that this is what you choose to wear and this right. is what you are and who you are. So. There, there, there is as ridiculous as it seems when you have a world where you could say, you know, I this is what I identify. You talked about Rachel Dozel, uh, yeah. the uh, the woman who claimed that she was black because, you know, essentially living her life in blackface. Right. You know, I, I mean, but because she has a high opinion of African Americans, the African American community is the one that turned on her. Yes. It wasn't Caucasians that said, you know, you're a turncoat. It was black people that said, you're not black. And I think the line that was drawn was, you haven't lived in the community or you, you weren't privy to or subject to the constraints that the community has felt. And I think that's, that's functionally where the dividing line could possibly be. It's, it really is a, a – hey, let's go to uh, the Republican line. And John in Rochester – John in Rochester, you're on hard line. Go ahead, sir. Hey, Dave. Hey, Professor. Yeah, you know, I, I was kind of outraged with what Sean Ryan did uh, to make a decision like that. And one of the primary reasons is 
this uh, supposed uh, faux pas that the, uh, one of the owners of uh, uh, Chick-fil-A made were, was years ago when he contributed, from, his, from my understanding, his personal account, $25,000. He was against that proposition of, or, or for the proposition of banning uh, gay marriage in California. And that was it. That was years ago. And it was one, one incident from what I could see. Now, I think he continues to donate to a number of causes that folks are pointing out as having uh, a litmus test, if you will, revolving around sexuality. And so I, I, I don't think it was just the one, um, but I do believe it would have been isolated to leadership, if you will. But, but what bothers me, Professor, is this. Uh, the gay, uh, we had an AIDS epidemic that started in the early 1980s, primarily caused by gay sexual behavior and drug dealing, drug uh, addicts. Uh, and I don't hear anything about that type of uh, behavior. And uh, Well, I, would, I wouldn't say, let, let's just change that, because you could say the, the spread of, of AIDS through blood contact, and then, of course, you had different, because honestly, pr- promiscuity is what caused AIDS. It wasn't a matter of, of gay versus hetero. I mean, we saw more people right, right now in Africa that aren't having gay sex that were transmitting AIDS through heterosexual sex. Uh, and then of course, drug use is sharing a needle. Yeah, it was across the board. People didn't know what it was, right. how it was transmitted and, and any kind of activity, any kind of contact along those lines would have been. So it's not, I mean, the, the, numbers, show, the numbers show us with HIV in the eighties that the, the only community that was coming out saying they had it was the gay community, but there were obviously to millions of people in the heterosexual community that didn't even get tested for it because they thought it's a gay disease. Exactly. And the stereotype was, was how we frame that, that right. issue. And it, my whole point of this was to use it as an example of uh, way in the past. Okay. All right. I, I'm just saying, I appreciate your call, John. I'm just saying that my, my issue here with Chick-fil-A is that if I eat a sandwich, you cannot know what's in my heart. Okay. And if you sell me a sandwich, you can't know what's in the heart of the person selling the sandwich. Could be. I mean, uh, I think my broader issue is, is, look, this is totally fine if there is a requirement that there be non-discrimination contracts for all employees of a particular entity that goes into a public building like an airport. Totally fine, rational basis for that. It's when an organization or an entity gets singled out for their speech Without thinking of, you know, is the, does this apply to Sh- everybody? Show me the different companies that have been told they cannot. Can Spencer Gifts right. open up a sexual, you know, uh, device, you know, kiosk at the airport? No, that's not appropriate for the airport. You can't open up an adult bookstore there. Right. Right. But Chick-fil-A, it's not the product. It's the ideology of the people. If ISIS built a falafel stand... Would they be able to sell their falafels? No, because they're ISIS. I'm just saying that. Make them easy to find. It really would. (laughs) Hey, let's go to the Democratic line and Tony and Clarence. Go ahead, Tony. Yes, uh, great show today. I really enjoyed the first segment. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Uh, My question is to Professor Nyheisel. I thought that ever since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that we have had a series of laws protecting certain groups of people up to the point of protecting transgenders. 
Now, you know the current president wants to get rid of all the 23,000 transgenders serving in the armed forces. Yes, and I think that's well, unfortunate and unacceptable. But Excuse me? I think, I think that his policy is unenfor- un- unenfor- uh, unfortunate and unacceptable. He agrees with you. I, I agree did, with you. I, yeah. I disagree with you, Tony, but he agrees with you. Go ahead. Yeah, well, also, uh, you talked about the uh, Citizens United and Hobby Lobby. Yes. Hobby Lobby decision. I'd like you, Professor Nizo, as a, as a challenge, go look at the investments that Hobby Lobby makes. They are involved in companies that produce contraceptives that in, that in, their, in their portfolios for their 401s and that. They invest in the very thing that they objected to. Well, well, you Quite know possible. what? The Constitution allows you to be a hypocrite. The Constitution allows <laughs> you to be a liar. The Constitution allows you to express dumb ideas. Alex Jones just came out this week and said he's an idiot, basically. He, he, he admitted he told to, us what we've long known. <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm saying? That, that's all protected speech. Whether it's repugnant, whether you lost respect for their inconsistency, that's your choice as well. And I would argue that your ability to share someone's inconsistency is also protected speech. Right. The last point is I'd love to have the president shut the the southern border down because only about 14% of our trade is through that border. Love to have him do it. It helped the Democrats. Thank you. All right. Okay. Appreciate that. Here, here's the whole thing, though, with when, when you talk about uh, – when, when, when we get into this whole uh, Hobby Lobby thing, is that we're, we're talking about established law. So now if we're going to go after that, it's just like Roe v. Wade. Right. If you're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, you have to have a reason because a law came up that showed, you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's a, a Texas abortion law or a Georgia abortion I mean, law. Functionally, you need a majority of the court. I mean, well, there are lots of people who disagree with Hobby Lobby. Lots of people who disagree with the Citizens United case. They've got some points, but it's the Supreme Court that needs to make that determination. And, and it's not going to happen at, in a legislator uh, body of Albany or Erie County. Functionally, no. Yeah, right. Hey, that's uh, Dr. Jacob Nyheisel's big brain. We're going to come <laughs> back. We're going to have another big brain, Mark Epstein. You've heard him uh, many times at WBN. He's got a new piece in New English Review. He'll be back. We'll talk about that. It's the managerial class of the government. This is what brings uh, Jacob Nyheisel here every Sunday. We'll be back. It's Hardline. Welcome back to Hardline. We've got uh, Dr. Jacob Nyheisel from the University of Buffalo School of Political Science, and we have on the hotline Dr. Mark Epstein uh, from WBN. He's a contributor. He has a new piece that's in NewEnglishReview.org. It's called Why Donald Trump is an Existential Threat to the Managerial State. Uh, it just went up uh, today, in fact. And one of the uh, pieces uh, that I read before the program that is uh, really, I know is going to be fascinating to Dr. Nyheisel, and we'll have Mark Epstein on here to, uh, to talk about this piece. But he talks about the election of 1912. And, and, and basically, uh, this is what shaped the 20th century in, in politics. And, and the idea of the managerial state, you know, we've heard of, you know, what did the federal government do before Dr. Epstein talks about really before the assassination of Garfield, the federal government was there for war. And you brought in your staff, your cadre were all appointments based on party and and nepotism. And that's who you brought in to run the government. 
And outside of public services, what did they didn't do what they do today. And now you have an entire group of folks that are employed, and it doesn't matter who the president is, they have their own ideology. You said, uh, Dr. Neuheisel, they have their own motives. Right. I mean, they're, in geeky terms, we think about this as principal agent problems. Uh, the, they are serving as the agent of a principal, the principal being the people we elect. And if there isn't an enforcement mechanism, sometimes they can stray away from the, the direct, what the direct principal wants. That's right. Dr. Uh, Mark Epstein, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So I want to talk about this, uh, this piece. And, and the idea here is that uh, the uh, candidates uh, you're talking about back before, uh, what is it? The, uh, you're quoting uh, Sidney Milkis uh, in an argument that he made that the 1912 election was the most consequential of the 20th century because it set the trajectory of American politics ever since. What was so special about what happened in 1912? Uh, well, uh, essentially, the the dominant uh, American party from the time of uh, Lincoln had been the Republican Party. They dominated the presidency. They dominated the zeitgeist. And the Republican Party really begins as a reformist party. It wants to get rid of slavery. I mean, that's the impetus. And once, the, you know, <laughs> the slaves are freed, you have the civil rights amendments, the occupation, for better or worse, ends in the South, that reformist impulse doesn't go away. So progressivism is real. The home of progressivism is really the Republican Party. And what happens in the 1912 election is that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, really turns over the apple cart uh, when he opposes uh, William Howard Taft, who had been his protege and picked successor uh, for the Republican nomination. And that, of course, splits the Republican Party. And Roosevelt then uh, gets the largest vote ever of a third-party candidate. 27% of the popular vote, he gets 88 electoral votes. A little different than Ross Perot did. Right. But he wasn't a bull moose. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, but after, after bull moose, he forms the Progressive Party. And, and so... Uh, you know the argument that's made is that really he he dictates the arc of the election in American politics, even in defeat. Uh, and as a result, you wind up getting Woodrow Wilson, who's a, a, another progressive in the White House. So it's progressivism that really dominates the American uh, zeitgeist and political landscape from that time forward. Now it's going to take another thirty years. Uh, after Teddy Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt to cement this progressive impulse into actual government policy and bureaucracy. But people are mistaken if they think that, for example, Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was courted by both parties because of his progressivism. He, he loses the election not because he's too progressive. He loses it because he, uh, of the issue of competence to handle the Great Depression. One of the things you'll get uh, in this uh, piece uh, by uh, Dr. Mark Epstein in the newenglishreview.org uh, today is uh, he quotes Barry Carl in The Uneasy State, which you won't hear from many liberals today. But why was Roosevelt's was Roosevelt uh, the fact that FDR became president because Hoover did a horrible job and people hated Hoover? Or was it that people wanted a progressive uh, president in Roosevelt, it really was 
you know, the fact that this was an anti-Hoover vote. It wasn't a we need a socialist leaning leader in the White House. Yeah, that's very much the case. I mean, the the uh, the view of Roosevelt, the, the, even with among Democrat power brokers, was that they were very uncertain that he was up to the job. You know, the famous line about him was uh, second class mind first first-class temperament. I mean, uh, but he, he dispelled all of that, you know, in a, in a pretty quick amount of time once he got the White House. Well, you, you, you go all throughout the 20th century, and it, it now we get to this, you know, this, uh, this managerial state or, you know, whatever you want to define it as. You could say, what is the deep state? It's really the managerial state, the group that you have in these people are loyal to their job, to their promotion. You go to the Pentagon Papers and talk about the leak of the Pentagon Papers and how it was really a former uh, military contractor from the Rand Corporation. And while we look at Snowden and WikiLeaks, these are folks that are brought into the apparatus of the CIA. They're brought into the NSA, but they're not really part of the NSA. They're not part of the CIA. And yet these contractors now have the same access that these GS-12s and 10s have. And they're really the ones that are causing really the, 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 the destruction of a I mean, what, what Edward Snowden did to our intelligence apparatus, it'll take generations to really identify. I mean, this is tactics, procedures, everything. Uh, WikiLeaks before they were. Uh, you know, the enemy of uh, of Hillary Clinton, they were the enemy of the Bush administration. Uh, what do you make of when we get past the Vietnam War into the 70s? Well, uh, you know, my it's interesting. In the Pentagon Papers, uh, this had nothing to do with the Nixon administration. And, and they were reluctant at first to even pursue the issue. Uh, but they decided it was a bad precedent. So they wind up taking this to court. There's a six to three decision. Every opinion was was a separate opinion. You had nine different opinions on on the uh, publishing of the Pentagon Papers, and and so what happens is 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 uh, you, you kind of it establishes the ability and the right of of uh, of uh, these contracted these subcontracted people going off the reservation and just leaking out whatever they want with uh, really almost no chance that they're ever going to be prosecuted or brought, you know, suffer any penalty for it. Now, I, what I argue uh, in, in, the, in the article is that the, the, Rep- the Republicans become a party of uh, a kind of, uh, we're going to be the custodial party, we're the good bookkeepers, we could do the job better. They have no, they, they've, they've been successfully um, uh, cut off from, from the history of their progressive roots, they're portrayed very successfully by uh, New Deal historians and propagandists that they're really the, the party of the big moneyed interests in Wall Street, etc. Their, their uh, progressive roots are kind of <laughs> lost in the, midst, in, in the midst of time. And their only claim is that, you know, we could do a better job. So for oh, 20 years, the Democrats controlled the White House they control the legislature. They control Congress, except for a brief two-year period. And then, when the Cold War comes along, Eisenhower, who was also courted by both parties, you know, great hero of World War II, 
he is able to get the White House back uh, in Republican hands because of the Cold War. There was, there was pretty much a consensus about what America was about, who the threat was, and was bipartisan. So it, it, it appeared on the surface, if you look at, this, at the 50s, that there was a consensus of, of, of what America was about. But I argue that beginning with um, LBJ, the consensus begins to fracture for two reasons. Number one, LBJ does a very good job of portraying uh, uh, Barry Goldwater as an intemperate fringe nut who will wind up blowing up the world if he ever gets his hand on the nuclear button. And the other thing that LBJ does is he doubles down on the New Deal with the Great Society programs. And the Great Society programs are going to really uh, firmly place the government, the federal government, as not just a, a, a provider of funds or certain benefits like Social Security. They're going to uh, intrude irrevocably into all sorts of walks of life that the federal government never had a, a role in before. Well, you, you go into how the, the rise of the federal uh, judiciary really becomes entrenched in the fact that what we can't get done at the legislative level, we can further do at the judiciary level. Uh, and this is at the same time of the great society. So we have almost four different phases of this managerial state. From the beginning of it, uh, we see the... Uh, the FDR, you know, administration to LBJ, where we're locking it in. And then the final phase really doesn't see itself uh, grow uh, until you have the Obama administration, according to your uh, article, which is in the uh, New English org. why Donald Trump is an existential threat to the managerial state. Uh, the, a brilliant piece by Mark Epstein. He joins us on the hotline. And now you're getting into the Obama administration where we see the Department of Education working with the Department of Justice because low black graduation rates are linked to higher incarceration rates. So therefore, let's keep kids in school longer, even though they're showing that the superintendents, the principals, there are disciplinary problems. But if we kick these kids to the streets, they're going to commit crime so keep them in schools, and you make the uh, uh, you make the comparison to the Promise Program, which was funded by the Obama administration, a fifty four fifty four million dollar uh, grant that went to Broward County, uh, and this, of course, famous for the Parkland shooter. Why you even have that shooter in school is because they were monetized to keep people like him in school. Correct. So you, you you then have the federal government. I mean, it's incremental. It doesn't begin with the Obama administration. But but what happens is is that this consensus begins to fracture first with LBJ and then with the McGovern candidacy. So you you can't you can't when you look at the McGovern candidacy, you you, you can't simply say that McGovern was you know like just a just a continuation of the. Uh, the, the riots that took place at the 1968 convention in Chicago, the Democratic Convention, which was protesting the Vietnam War and uh, LBJ's policies in Vietnam. You know, they say that was a pretty much protests against 
uh, both the incompetence of, of the LBJ administration and the execution of the war and maybe the morality of the war. He could throw those things in. But by the time you get to McGovern, the party clearly shifts left. And the consensus is then, I think, uh, fractured, and, and, and there's a chasm that be, the, the, the cracks become a chasm. Dr. Epstein, I'd like to ask you a quick question about uh, the, the New Deal era. I, I think your timeline's really interesting. I, I haven't read your piece yet, but certainly familiar with a lot of the literature you're citing. The, the traditional narrative, at least the one I'm familiar with in terms of the New Deal era and why Republicans really couldn't seem to get it together electorally for a while there, was that they kind of didn't get that the the electorate had shifted in terms of being on board with the New Deal. I, I think famously Herbert Hoover was sort of doubling down on the idea that, no, we we need to remain in the camp where the markets are going to correct this if we just hang on long enough and we don't need to give up our ideals in pursuit of the the immediate relief that, that Roosevelt and the Democrats are, are offering. Um, you talked about the, the New Deal propagandists. Do they have a, a different narrative of how that worked internally in the Republican Party, or or what kinds of things are you seeing there? Uh, you, ta- you just take a look at what Arthur Schlesinger did. There, there's, a, there's a very good book called Coolidge and the Historians, and, and, and Arthur Schlesinger, for example, cut and pasted, pasted speeches by Coolidge to give a uh, – it, it was a real exercise. I, I can't call it plagiarism, but it was just, just out-and-out propaganda where he took snippets of speeches of Coolidge and created whole new, whole new documents. It's, it's, it, it's really remarkable what went on. But when it comes to somewhat Hoover, Hoover's view, Hoover – believed that the that the federal arrangement in which you had um, uh, local uh, government and private charities would could deal with the issues of the new deal there was uh, of the depression this was something totally different uh, from anything that anyone had ever seen i mean harding faced not people many people don't realize it but harding faced a, a, a sharp depression uh, when he when he came into office and and we came out of that depression within a year or two and uh, Hoover felt that the, the the same institutions that mediated American life, which was state, local, charitable, private institutions, could do the same thing, and and he felt that way because Herbert Hoover himself, as a philanthropist, really created the uh, uh, the war relief effort, the food war relief effort for Europe, and actually as, uh, uh, went into his own pockets, went to England during World War I, and actually embarrassed the American government into coming into the, into the uh, uh, activities that he had undertaken and putting him in charge of it. So he just, he just didn't see that this was something uh, uh, of, a, of a quantitative and qualitative difference of, uh, from other depressions. That's, that's, that's essentially was Hoover's view. And when Hoover put, did start putting government policies into place, the New Deal never repudiated anything that he did. But it was just too little too late. That's fascinating. Thanks for, for sharing that. And absolutely no disagreement there on Schlesinger. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So in the, in the few uh, minutes that we have left, I want to get to how Trump has, uh, has un, you know, un, unhinged this managerial state. What about Donald Trump's election? Not the man, not the presidency, but what about this election has caused an existential threat to the managerial state? Well, I, I, I think that they have two problems. Number one, Donald Trump didn't come into this with any, I think, uh, a coherent view 
of government uh, where America has gone. I mean, if he if he picked up and read my piece, not that I, that he ever will, but he would he would might look at this and say, "Ha, oh, this is interesting." But he confronted this this managerial state that had become fully entrenched and had developed a level of of temerity so that they actually believed. You know, I make the point that that traditionally. Bureaucrats are faceless and nameless people. You don't know their names. You don't remember their names. But but now you have a whole cast of characters who have become both uh, brazen, mouthy, and really willing to in, in, engage in activity that that many people would uh, call a, uh, a a silent coup, or maybe not so silent coup at this stage of the game. So how did we get to this point where where the where where the bureaucrat who was supposed to be in place based on merit, actually now wants to manipulate uh, an election. And, and when Trump, I think, becomes aware of this, uh, you know, when Admiral Rogers comes to uh, Trump Tower and tells him you know, to get the heck out of there as soon as possible, I think that, I think that when, when Trump begins to fight back and hold his ground, I think that they realize that uh, they have to do everything they can to take him down. I don't think they're terribly smart, by the way. I mean, I, the, the thing that strikes me when I listen to Brennan and Clapper and Hayden and, uh, and, and Comey is that they're very, very pedestrian. They're not the kind of first-rate people that you would associate with, like, an Alan Dulles who ran the CIA or a Wild Bill Donovan, you know, from Buffalo originally, or, a, uh, or, or, some of the, or Helms, Richard Helms. They're really, they're really second to third rate types. So another question is how did how did the quality of these people get so diminished over time? You know, I have a theory for that, but I don't want to bring it up now. Well, listen, uh, we've got to uh, run, but the uh, the article is at the newenglishreview.org. Mark Epstein is the author. He's been on uh, WBN a million times. Uh, it's it's an absolutely brilliant piece. It is uh, Donald Trump uh, presents an existential threat to the managerial state, uh, and it just gives you a, a, a it's a primer for the last almost 150 years of what's gone on in the United States, how we got to this point, and why Donald Thru- Donald Trump is such a threat. Dr. Epstein, thanks for joining us. Congratulations. Great to be with you. Thanks. That is Dr. Mark Epstein. You can see his piece at the newenglishreview.org, uh, Trump's threat to the managerial uh, state. Dr. Uh, Dr. Jacob Nyheisel, <laughs> too many doctors, uh, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. I we always will, enjoy this. We will see you next week. We'll have more local uh, candidates running for local offices. We're going to get into this Orleans County Sheriff's race, which is always great. Rural County, Orleans. We'll get the two sheriff candidates on here. We'll also hear from uh, Mark Polnikar's coming up. We'll have uh, Kevin Hardwick and Jacob McMahon in a legislative race in Erie County coming up here in a couple weeks. Uh, It's going to be fantastic. All local politics. It's hardline. Here comes Meet the Press. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.